Hi, I'm Dan Fermat, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by General Motors. Today's Tuesday, March 16th. The number of daily vaccinations is up, U.S. retail sales are down, and we're focused on an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. Bessemer, Alabama is home to one of Amazon's U.S. fulfillment centers, those massive warehouses where all that stuff you order is sorted, picked, packed, and shipped. Basically, the new nerve centers of American commerce. But Amazon's Bessemer facility isn't just one of many. It's ground zero for the most serious U.S. unionization push in Amazon's history, with nearly 6,000 employees expected to vote yay or nay by a March 29th deadline. If successful, it would embolden Amazon worker unionization efforts elsewhere. If unsuccessful, those other labor attempts could be stillborn. Four things to know. One, Amazon, which last year recorded a $21 billion profit, does not want its fulfillment centers to be unionized, and there are reports of anti-union tactics being deployed in Bessemer. The company also tried, but failed, to persuade the National Labor Relations Board to require the votes be made in person rather than by mail. Two, Amazon argues these employees are already well compensated, with full-timers making more than $15 per hour plus benefits. Union organizers, though, say this is much about safety and other working conditions, like bathroom breaks, as it is about pay, although they obviously want the right to collectively bargain pay. Three, some Amazon facilities in Europe have unionized, but Bessemer would be the first one in the U.S. Four, there is some bipartisan support for the Bessemer effort. Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida last week expressed support while President Biden issued a statement supporting unionization efforts broadly, although it was a message clearly aimed at Amazon without saying the word Amazon. The bottom line, this will be the digital age's most important labor vote. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with journalist Alec McGillis, who just wrote a new book about Amazon. But first, this. We're joined now by Alec McGillis, a reporter for ProPublica and author of the new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. So, Alec, let's start down in Alabama. What's at stake with this union vote? There's so much at stake. I mean, it's just extraordinary that this book is coming out just as this this vote is is happening. We'll know soon how it turns out. One of the sort of core chapters of my book is about the story of a steel mill in Baltimore that used to be the largest steel mill in the world and is now the home of not one but two Amazon warehouses. The mill was wiped completely clear, and, and now you've got all these warehouses there. And it's just so striking to see everything kind of come full circle where guys were once making $35 an hour there because they had union representation. They had fought for decades to get that that kind of pay, those kind of benefits, that kind of self-control. And, and now you've got warehouses where people are back to making $15 an hour and being run ragged in these incredibly grueling, isolating jobs. And really the question of whether we can get back to that kind of middle-class existence that you had at the steel mill, a more stable kind of existence, really depends partly on whether you can get some kind of organizing into those warehouses the way you did at the mills. Are you surprised that this union push is starting in Alabama, say, as opposed to a place like Baltimore? I mean, Alabama is a right-to-work state. 
I, I certainly was surprised when it first started taking root there, but it is, it's worth keeping in mind, actually, that Alabama has more of a history of unions than other deep southern states, partly because the state was home to, to the, the sort of the heart of the southern steel industry. The town itself, of course, Bessemer, is named after the man who invented the steelmaking process, Henry Bessemer, which, so there's some very rich kind of historical irony there. And, and then you also do have a lot of the organizing there is being done by the poultry workers in the area, which I, I find to, you know, to be another kind of very compelling detail. And finally, there is the racial element. I mean, so much of this particular organizing campaign is, is based in some of the strong Black activism that came out of last year's protests. And, and so in that sense, it's, it's not so surprising that it should be happening there. Alec, Amazon's response to this unionization effort is to say the folks in Bessemer were paying you on average more than $15 an hour. You're getting medical, dental benefits, even a 401k. In short, what are you complaining about? So what are they complaining about? It's not only about the pay. Amazon did raise up from 12 or 13 an hour to $15 an hour a couple of years ago. Although, you know, it's worth noting that at $15 an hour, that is still so below, you know, basically a, a healthy living wage in a lot of parts of this country. It's also, of course, inexpressibly below the wealth at the top of this company. You know, a man who whose wealth grew by $58 billion just in the past year. That's billion with a B. But for the workers, it's more than just the pay. It's also about having a say within these warehouses. The work is so, so grueling. The productivity expectations are so incredibly high. There's a reason why turnover at the warehouses is, is so remarkably high. I, I talked to one worker in Colorado who joined summer before the pandemic with a class of cohort of about 20 workers. And a few months into the pandemic, he was the only guy left from his cohort because people just can't hack it. It's just such an incredibly transient world because the work is so grueling and enervating. And that's one reason why the organizing is tough because it's, it's a very transient universe. This is the first major unionization effort in an Amazon facility for several years, but one's never succeeded in the U.S. before. And there's a lot of pundits who are pretty skeptical that this one's going to succeed. If, if there's such kind of unhappiness or lack of satisfaction on the parts of workers uh, that you talk to while researching the book, why does it seem so difficult to get a unionization effort through? Well, you know, one, one reason, of course, is that the company has been very effective for years at fighting back at these kind of campaigns and, and just, you know, blanketing workers with a, you know, very strong anti-union message. And also the fact that we have at this point, you know, we've gotten to the point in this country where there's such low, low saturation of, of private sector unions that for a lot of workers, it's simply not something that's familiar. It's not in the water the way that it, that it was, you know, for workers back in the 30s and 40s and 50s who were organizing in this in for instance the steel industry it's just not it's something that's almost kind of been lost from the the local culture in a lot of these places and so we'll see how it turns out the fact that there's even a fight on Amazon's hands in Alabama does say something it does say something about workers really being ready to to take another look at this Alec, Amazon's concern, of course, is that if this unionization effort in Alabama succeeds, it could spread to other fulfillment centers and other sorts of facilities. Is that a justified fear? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it would be a, it would just be a huge boost to efforts elsewhere. The fact is that the the warehouses really are, in some sense, 
kind of tailor-made for organizing. There are a lot of parts of our economy now that are difficult to organize. You know, you're seeing it now with, say, all the gig workers. How do you organize Uber drivers? But these warehouses here are really kind of, in a sense, kind of more old-fashioned in the sense you have all hundreds and hundreds of thousands of workers in a single place doing this low-wage, grueling work, really just kind of, in a sense, you know, waiting to have some kind of organization and sort of self-direction and autonomy brought to their existences. So you could definitely see this spread. So you've written this new book about Amazon. What was the most interesting thing you learned during your research that you didn't already know or maybe already suspect? Oh gosh, there was, I mean, there's so much, of course. I spent three years researching this. One small detail that amazed me that I you know, came across in OSHA documents, I was doing you know, tons of digging through workplace safety documents. And at one warehouse in Ohio, outside Columbus, the company actually was so kind of desperate for workers and desperate for workers who could drive forklifts, which is a big part of the job in the warehouses, that it actually assigned um, a couple people who were legally blind to drive forklifts. And um, not surprisingly, there were accidents. That was one small thing. More broadly, I think I was just also just struck by the extent of the, the tax credit um, hunting, tax subsidy, gaming by the company. I got all this email traffic from FOIA's and public information requests showing just how aggressive the company was and how obsequious the local officials were in, in doling out tax subsidies to the company in exchange for warehouses and data centers. Final question for you. Uh, you have a book out. Most people who buy books now buy them through Amazon. Do you feel weird about that? Uh, there's certainly an irony there. And what I've just generally been telling people is that I'm happy for them to read the book any way they can get it. I know that for some people, Amazon is maybe the most convenient thing if they don't live near a bookstore or what have you. But there are so many independent booksellers out there who are eager to sell the book. I've been hearing from some of them who got early copies of it and who are just really, you know, become big champions of the book um, because it really speaks to what, what they've been seeing in their world. So, you know, I, so I urge people to get it at an independent bookseller if they can, but, but bottom line, you know, please, you know, read the book any way they can. Alec McGillis, the name of the book is Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Welcome back. What we're watching today is inflation, or more specifically, fears of inflation, particularly as the $1.9 trillion stimulus begins to kick in. Bank of America this morning released the results of its monthly survey of investment fund managers, showing that inflation was picked by them as the top so-called tail risk threat. It's the first time in over a year that COVID-19 didn't come in first, Although the pandemic and potential vaccine rollout problems did still get cited more than things like a stock bubble or Biden's tax and regulatory proposals. For the record, the most recent inflation numbers came in a bit lower than expected, with economists' consensus that the consumer price index will peak at 3.7% in May, core inflation at about 2.3%. But unless something unexpected happens, you know, a much higher increase, the Fed seems unlikely to change its current dovish course. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Panda Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.